Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to our second Book Dreams bonus episode. I'm Julie Sternberg, here as always with my co-host Evio Hallam, and I think our plan today is just to talk about what we've been reading lately. Did you have additional hopes and dreams for this episode, Eve? I just like hanging out with you and talking about books. So, you know, <laughs> let's fulfill my hopes and dreams. What <laughs> okay, if, tell perfect. me what you've been reading. Yes. Okay. For starters, I've been rereading Elizabeth Strout's Lucy Barton books. There are four of them. My name is Lucy Barton, Anything is Possible, O. William, and Lucy by the Sea. Elizabeth Strout is one of my all-time favorite authors. I have read every book she's written. She is a master at using relatively few words to bring characters just to glorious life. But I had no plans to reread the Lucy Barton books, except that I happened upon this crazy online class at the Center for Fiction that was covering those books, and Elizabeth Strout actually participates in two of the sessions. I have no idea how the teacher of this class managed to arrange that. I have taken Center for Fiction classes before. They're open to anyone, anywhere, but none of them have ever included participation by the book authors before. So this is a real fangirl moment for me and some added pressure on my reading. I mean, it is a delight to reread these books. They're even better the second time around. But I want Elizabeth Strout to like me and think I'm smart. <laughs> well, of course she's going to like you. And you are smart. And she is a Thank person you. of great sensitivity who will realize that. Is well, it a she big is. class? Do you, do you think you'll get to interact with her personally? So we've had one session with her there. And I can't remember exactly how many students, maybe 12, I want to say. Oh, and, oh, no. This yeah. is So everyone's there as an individual. You're not just one of hundreds in the screen. Right. Yeah. No. And you can ask her questions and you actually really interact with her. She's wonderful. Has she said anything that has changed or expanded or something, how you look at her books? Well, I would say something that she said that I particularly love because it's something I believe, but I've never heard anyone else say in quite this way. Someone asked her, how do you keep people turning the pages in your books? Like, how do you write a book that's so gripping? And she said, in essence, it's all voice. Mm. That if a character has the right voice, basically readers will want to just know what's going on with the character, what the character is thinking, what the character has to say. And I am a very voice-focused reader and writer. So of course, I love hearing that because, you know, it's what I try to do anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, we could talk about this at great length, but I still want to know, have you had time to read anything else lately? Yes. I have read some really interesting nonfiction lately. I don't know if you've heard of the memoir Skinfolk by Matthew Pratt Guterell. It's the story of a family with two white parents who have two biological white children. And in addition, they want to create what they call a Noah's Ark for a family with, and I'm quoting here, two of every race. Oh, yes. I think I read the New York Times Sunday book review of this book. It made me curious about it, but at the same time, feeling very cringy about it. 
I understand that, but what exactly made you cringy? Well, I mean, we can start with the fact that Noah brought animals onto his book, so (laughs) onto his arc, so the metaphor is a little cringy, just right out of the gate. Hundred percent, yeah. But you know, just peopling your family in a race-based way seems like a pretty fraught thing to do with no acknowledgement of. A culture, I mean, and I understand this took place in the 70s, so how people thought about these things um, has yeah. changed. But anyway, tell me about the book before I go on and on <laughs> okay. about my opinions right, about right, the book, right, right. having not read the right, book. Right, right. So the parents adopt four children, none of whom are white. Let me just quickly go through it because I think it's a little helpful. In 1970, the author, Matt, is born and he's white. He's their biological son. Then in 1972, they adopt a Korean infant who has always gone by the nickname Bug, and they don't remember how this nickname came to be. Uh, In 1973, there's another biological son, Mark. And then in 1975, they adopt a black Asian child who's brought out of Saigon by military transport plane. He's actually the same age as the oldest, Matt. So he's five years old when he is adopted. His name is Bear. Then in 1977, Anna, who is 13 years old in 1977, she arrived. She is Asian and white. And then in 1983, Eddie, who is six when he arrives, he's adopted from the South Bronx and he is black. Basically, the parents are idealists. They want to use their family to address the problems of racism and overpopulation. So rather than having more children, they adopted children. They buy a house with a white picket fence in rural New Jersey, and they try to set an example for the community of a model multiracial Brady Bunch family in the 70s. It's one of those situations where it's like, I kind of understand what you're trying to do. And I think I see why you think this is a good idea. But using children in your family as tools for the advancement of a social ideal is just going to be a mistake. Like, yeah. Just yeah. don't. So Skinful, it's not the best memoir I've ever read, but it's an unusual and thought-provoking story about family and race. I do recommend it. I mean, the author makes clear from the start that things go wrong. So it's propulsive in that way. You sort of want to figure out, okay, what were they trying to do? What were the effects? And why does it go wrong? Got it. I also read A Village in the Third Reich, How Ordinary Lives Were Transformed by the Rise of Fascism by Julia Boyd. This book is right up my alley. Uh, it tells <laughs> You can just stop right there because that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I was so excited when I saw that this book exists. <laughs> well, and just so you know, when for everyone listening, we do have a, a Google Doc we're both looking at. So I saw that title and I thought... Oh, this is so Julie. This is right up her alley. I am so excited. But anyway, it tells the story of Obertsdorf, which is a simple village in southern Germany and the Alps, and how it was affected by the Nazi regime. You know, how do these very ordinary people respond to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis? Why did so many people support the change of regime? How long did that support last? What was the effect of the regime on their lives? How did they respond to its brutality? And why was that their response? I have always sort of sensed that it's a mistake to assume that the Germans of the 1930s had this sort of very unique mentality that permitted the rise of a barbaric regime. I think Mm -hmm. it's critical to recognize that 
we could all be members of a society that takes a turn in that direction. So I feel like it's important to understand what was going on for ordinary Germans then, to know what to look for and what to resist in ourselves and in those in power. So I feel like books like A Village in the Third Reich are useful for that. So um, what do we look for and what should we resist? (laughs) Julie? (laughs) I think that, that might be too hard. I think that one thing to look for is what was going on in part was that even though these folks actually did not support the Nazis initially, they felt like circumstances had gotten really bad. And the usual politicians were not helping. And so they just wanted to try something new, anything new. Mm -hmm. And we can be susceptible to that same kind of thinking, right? You see a lot of that in the election of Trump, and it's understandable. We have real problems, and the current system is not proved particularly effective at solving a lot of them. There's a lot that's broken. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tendency to feel like, well, you know, let's kind of blow it all up and try something very different. And it's an understandable tendency, but it's rash and can have very, very dire consequences. And certainly fascism is a word that's getting thrown around a lot these days. Um, I think it's important to understand what the word actually does mean, because at the same time that there are people throwing it around, there are also historians you know, sort of ringing alarm bells saying, um, we have seen this movie before, (laughs) you know, there are echoes of this going on right now. One thing that was really interesting, I'll just say, is how effective the Nazis were at taking over even the smallest community organizations and putting um, supporters of Nazism in positions of authority, even in the smallest of organizations, and then having them watch over and do kind of loyalty tests at every level of society. So not just local, but hyper-local. Yeah. One thing to keep an eye out for and, and to realize is that when you feel like your livelihood, your life, your children, anything that matters to you is at stake if you stand up against something it's hard to take a stand. It's human not to take a stand. So if there's a system that is able to infiltrate at so many levels that the fear is so rampant, then the odds of succeeding in fighting it are low. People get very afraid relatively quickly, I would say, it seems like. Yeah, well, it's baked into us. We are group-based animals and the ostracism, which is the price we pay when we deviate from our group, is excruciating. Yeah. And so I would say one thing we can do now is whatever we can do to bolster the elements of our society that prevent that fear. You know, I'm thinking of the press right now. It's not that it prevents fear, but it does its best when it works well to speak truth about forces that can be trying to silence any kind of dissension. And so the elements that we have that promote dissension and promote full information and promote fighting against a very heavy-handed approach to governing, we have to do, I think, whatever we can to bolster them and protect them against the attacks against them. Which gets much, much more challenging in this age of artificial intelligence. But that's a whole other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
okay. too bad I so we need to talk total. about we need a bomb for all of this let's talk poetry <laughs> Yes, exactly. I, I want to mention, I listened to a book of poetry called Above Ground by Clint Smith. I don't normally read poetry collections. I find poetry very intimidating. I just assume that I'm missing all sorts of layers as I read. But our interview with Jasmine Manns back in episode 47 had a big effect on me. I love listening to her read her poems. So I decided to try Above Ground on audio, and it's just terrific. Smith wrote those poems when his two children were very young, mm -hmm. some of them when his wife was pregnant with his first child. They are so full of love and fun and discovery, but also with the weight of being a parent, and particularly a Black parent in this world. So the range of topics is vast, from Ode to the Electric Baby Swing <laughs> I could totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. To another poem called When Standing at a Cabin at the Whitney Plantation. The poems work very meaningfully together as a whole, and the language is frequently breathtaking. I know we just said we were going to bring people up, you know, have kind of a balm, and this is a sad example, but it's so powerful. I just, I want to read it. It's from The First Time I Saw My Grandfather Cry. And his grandfather had just learned devastating news about his grandmother's health. Smith writes, His face became a lake after an oil spill, silent, empty, waiting for someone to clean up the mess and see if anything beneath the surface had survived. I mean, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I wow. can tell I'm going to be thinking about this book for a really long time. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. How about you? What have you been reading lately? Oh, what have I been reading lately? Um, let's see. So one of the books I read since our last bonus episode is Horse by Geraldine Brooks, which you've been seeing everywhere. It's on lots of lists and things. And as you know, I love historical fiction and I am a big Geraldine Brooks fan. I loved March, which was her reimagining of the life of Robert March, who's the absent father in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. In her book, in March, it takes place during his time as a chaplain in the Civil War. It's one of a very small number of books that actually brought me to tears. I also loved Caleb's Crossing. I loved Year of Wonders and People of the Book. All of these books have really rich world building and deep emotional depth. Which brings me to horse, where I'm sorry to say, at least in my opinion, not so much. Mm. Um, it's loosely based on a true story about an enslaved groom named Jarrett, who raises and trains what becomes one of the greatest racehorses of all time. So Jarrett's part of the story takes place in the years leading up to and during the Civil War. And then there are two other parallel plot lines, one involving a young art dealer in the 1950s and the other involving a white Australian scientist who works for the Smithsonian reconstructing animal skeletons and a black Nigerian-American art history PhD student who happens on an unattributed painting of the horse and tries to figure out its provenance. So... I mean, you know, what could be more up my alley than all of these right, things, right? right? Yeah. Like reconstructing right. animal Perfect. skeletons. Oh my God, <laughs> sign me up. And the structure of the book reminds me of Possession by A.S. Bryant, which is one of my all-time favorite books because the art history student and the animal skeleton scientists team up to try to figure out this mystery. But the execution falls way short of Possession and way short, I think, of Geraldine Brooks's other books, 
which was disappointing. Um, the mm-hmm. horse parts were really vivid. That was, I think, the strongest part. And I loved learning about that world, you know, what it's like to raise horses and the world of 19th century horse racing in the American South. That was really interesting and detailed. But nothing else was, especially the characters who all felt pretty sketchy to me. Mm-hmm. And then the Civil War felt like a distant backdrop when, in fact, it had everything to do with the events and characters in that plotline of the story. And Geraldine Brooks's writing from the point of view of her black characters felt very superficial to me. Yeah. So I was especially disappointed because, as I said, all the ingredients in this book are so up my alley. But yeah. I think she missed on this one. I have to say I'm relieved to hear you say this because I read Horse. It's the only book by Geraldine Brooks I've read so far. And I didn't really like it. I I didn't think it worked at the end of the day. So I sort of thought, well, maybe everyone loves Geraldine Brooks. Maybe she's just not for me. But I will give her other books a try, having heard what you had to say. Yeah. I mean, I can't promise that you'll adore her other books, but definitely this was not her best book. So definitely try one of the other ones. Okay. I will. Um, Did you read anything that you liked more? Well, I'm reading something that I like more. I'm about halfway through The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt. So this was one of the books that was sent to me by James Gilbert, whom we interviewed in episode 134 as part of my Haywood Hill book subscription. Haywood Hill is a bookstore in London, and they have this fantastic subscription service where they just send you, well, you pay them, and then they send you books on a monthly basis, and you you don't know what you're going to get. And so it's great. Um, And I think you have it on your night table too, right? Yes. I have The Last Samurai on my bedside table because I read The English Understand Wool by Helen DeWitt and loved it. But I haven't started The Last Samurai yet. Well, maybe after this, I'll go on to The English. Actually, I'm going to ask you a question about that book in a minute. Um, So I'm liking this book a lot. I think it's fair to call it dazzling. Mm, Wow. It's actually a re-release of her first novel. This was her first novel, and it was published in 2000. It's about a single mother, Sibylla, who's raising a son, Ludo, who may or may not be a genius and may or may not be a prodigy. And the story is told through both of their points of view. We meet Sibylla, who's American, while she's a student at Oxford studying classical languages. And we meet Ludo when he's five years old. And at that point, he already speaks English, French, Hebrew, ancient Greek, Latin, and probably a few more languages that I can't remember. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And then eventually, when he's about 11, he goes on a quest to find his father. But it's not a plot-driven story. This is a character-driven story, and it's also a book of ideas. You can never predict where Helen DeWitt's mind is going to go, and you follow her on all these kind of serpentine paths that always circle back to a place that makes sense. She's really just a marvel of a writer and a thinker. Um, I mean, at this point, I'm halfway through. I can't even tell you what it's quote unquote about. I mean, I have some thoughts, but I'm still not 100% sure. I'm just kind of marveling at the smartness and her humor and the oddity of it. Her writing reminds me of David Foster Wallace, but without the footnotes. You know, it's that kind of post-structural approach storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it has that intellectual range. It's not quite as post-structural as he is, but it's definitely in that universe. Mm. Oh, and it's called The Last Samurai because Sibylla watches the Kurosawa movie with Ludo because he lacks male role models. And so she figures he's got seven of them in this book if he watches the movie. (laughs) Well, that's an example of the oddity and the humor, you know. I will say the English Understand Wool is also 
odd in a wonderful way, but it's very short. It's more of a novella. It's more simply structured, I have to assume. Uh, it has that wonderful oddity and it's very interesting, but I, it must be a very different book is my guess. I'm interested to hear you say that. That was going to be my question. Does it sound like there are similarities? Yeah, this one is not a short book. It's under 500 pages, but not by much. It sounds like it's very digressive. Um, and that is not a word I would use to describe the English understandable. It is digressive. And you know what it has that I think will hook you is voice. Oh, yeah. It has really, really strong voice. Oh, um, I can't wait. So I think you might that's like great. it. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to say one thing really quickly before we close, which is I write a monthly newsletter on Substack sharing thoughts about what I've read lately. And I try not to do too much overlap, if any, with these podcasts. So uh, if anyone is interested, we'll include a link in the show notes and you can sign up. I would love that. I love your newsletters. Everyone should sign up. They're just <laughs> a joy you. to read. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that's it for this Book Dreams bonus episode. We always love hearing from you. Let us know what you're reading and loving. You can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find me at evejohallam.com and julie at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and